Being an expert sucks. As a teacher of spiritual intelligence and emotional health, I get cornered into being the guy who has all the answers. I'd like to take this opportunity to make a confession. I don't. What I do have are convictions. I have theories. I have questions. I find myself looking around and I'm like, we can't stay here. Stop setting up your tent. We can't stay here. Through my journey, it's become evident that being a participant is no longer enough. It's time to become reformers. These are my confessions. To get deeper in this conversation, visit MikeMayashiro.com. All right, so I'm about to interview Ed Oxford. I just want to give you guys a disclaimer because in post-editing, I noticed some problems. Ed had somebody working on some construction stuff at his house during the interview, and then also his phone went off a few times. So you're going to hear a couple of random noises at some point in the interview. I tried editing out as much of that as I could, but I also didn't want to lose his words. So some of that is going to get in. So I apologize for the irritation. I'd love for you just to get to emotionally prepare that that's going to happen. I'm just going to get past that, but this interview is so good. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, hello and welcome. As you guys know, I've been doing a series of interviews with people and today we've got a really cool conversation I'm gonna have with Ed Oxford here in front of me. So Ed and I met because of Kathy Baldock after I did that walk with Kathy. She told me afterward that I needed to connect with her friend Ed. So on the drive from Redding, California to Nashville, I was on the phone with Ed Oxford. Literally when I was driving up to the house I moved into in Nashville, I had to tell Ed, hey, Ed, I got to go. I'm driving up to the new house I'm about to be living in. We'll talk later. Click, right? And that's when Ed and I first met. It was, it was a great conversation. It was so cool. And then we've connected a bunch ever since. I wanted you guys to get to meet Ed and hear some of his perspective and experience. Ed, you guys have heard about from Kathy. He is co-authoring or working with her on the book that's coming out, The Forging of a Sacred Weapon, right? He's also in the film 1946. He and Kathy, their work is what that film is about. So Ed has a lot of experience and perspective in the LGBTQ plus conversation. Ed is a gay man. Um, Ed, would you care to introduce yourself to the world? Who are you? My name is Ed Oxford. Um, I was raised in a conservative Christian home, Southern Baptist. I served as a missionary in Japan with Campus Crusade for Christ or crew for a few years. And then um, I've also gone to seminary, Talbot School of Theology, which is connected to Biola University. And currently, I am a financial advisor. Nice. Okay. And so, Ed, I guess I just have some questions about your journey. I want to start with your story, like how you came to be where you are now. Do you remember how young you were when you realized for the first time that you were gay or that you weren't like other boys? Well, I never could use the gay word, even uh, as I started coming out. It just seemed I couldn't even say the word if I was talking about myself. It just my I would my tongue would twist on the G and I couldn't get it out for some reason because it just seemed like it was giving in. I can remember when Clay Aiken, when he came out, I was really sad because I was like, he gave in, you know, why didn't he fight this? What's wrong with him? What's going on? So I just had those types of thoughts throughout that. Now, being raised in a conservative Christian home, my family, my parents were they uh, excellent parents, they, an excellent upbringing. I have nothing bad to say about that. So they, they loved us dearly. They took us to church. They didn't force Christianity on us. They allowed us to make our own decisions and our own choices. And I had a special desire to just read the Bible more, to memorize scripture, to spend time studying it. I can remember teaching Sunday school lessons and different lessons, even as a high school student or as young as a junior high student before. And I just enjoyed it so much. So I really got involved with the, with the campus ministry at my campus at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. I knew something was different because I would relate to how other guys would talk about girls. Um, it didn't hit me the same way. So I thought something's different here. 
but there was no way that I could find out information. There's no one I could talk to, and there's no way I would have gone on the internet and done a search because what if somebody looks at my search history and what are you looking up and what's wrong? So I felt trapped in this box that I could not get out of and did not know how to get out of and did not know how to even educate myself on anything. I did not feel safe. If I would have ordered a book that came in the mail, what if somebody accidentally opened it? I mean, there was nothing safe. There's not, if I call someone on the phone to ask them a question and somebody presses redial and finds out where I called to, what are they going to think? So I just was terrified to find out any information that would have helped me. And so all I was left with was what I was hearing from pastors in church. But remember, I couldn't even ask them questions because I didn't feel safe and the types of things that they would say about LGBT people. And so I realized something's not fitting in here, but maybe it's because I'm not giving my life to Christ completely. Although I felt like every area of my life that I could give, I was giving to Christ. I thought, well, one day I'm going to wake up and God's going to heal me of this. I'm going to pray away the gay. If I pray hard enough, I'm going to figure this out because God is in charge and he can help me figure this out. I constantly thought that there was going to be an option, an opportunity to kind of do away with this. And I was pretty much suicidal for most of my life because of this, always feeling like I didn't fit in and something's wrong with me. And the more I thought about it and dug into it and looked into what passages I did see, the more depressed I became. And then when I would hear certain messages, from pastors or in a Sunday school class, it would create more anxiety and depression. And, you know, what can you do? And wow, God must really hate me if he's not healing me, because what's wrong with this picture? Even when I went to college, I, I only came out to maybe a, a couple of people, two or three people during that time. They were very kind and loving, but things always seemed different after that, as if they were looking at me like something's wrong. I'm broken. There's some kind of a demon in me or something like that. And they would go down these whole paths of othering me to a degree that did not feel very comforting. I wrapped myself into homework and schoolwork and doing the best I could in school and getting the best grades. And, and then I was very interested in missions. I went on a missionary trip to Japan during the summer after my senior year and just fell in love with all that could be done over there ministry-wise. The Japanese is less, are less than 2% uh, Christian. So there's a very small percentage of Christians in Japan. I said, you know, there's something that I could do to help out here and I need to. And so I decided to start pursuing learning Japanese, getting prepared, learning more scripture and Bible and studying in classes to get ready to go to Japan. And then then ultimately ended up joining Campus Crusade staff and going to Japan and serving for a few years. And I look at every area of my life, all these different little pockets of areas, because I've done such a wide variety of things that don't seem all connected and related until I see that writing this book and co-authoring this book with Kathy Baldock, there's no way I would have the perspective I have today had I not gone through all that I've gone through. So being in Japan and having to learn another language, it just gave me a different perspective for translations, for language, understanding that things can get lost in translation and how. I mean, all I knew up until that point as a kid was the decoder ring that you get out of the Cracker Jack box. And so this letter really, or this symbol means this letter, and then you put it all together and you get the message. That's not how languages translate. Some concepts are part of a culture that cannot directly translate to another culture and they need a much bigger explanation. And that's why we laugh sometimes because you'll see there's a translator and they'll say this long piece in their in their language. And then the translator will listen to that and they'll summarize it in two words, you know, or vice versa. They'll say a couple words and then you need a big old long paragraph to explain what they just said. So it's not word for word or a sentence for sentence translation when we're looking at these types of things. And so I think that's stuck in my head and the types of things that I said and the mistakes that I made in Japan. I can remember I was 
learning Japanese. I was in a prayer meeting at a church on a Wednesday night, and I got paired up with a girl who didn't speak any English. I was trying to use what little Japanese I knew at the time. We exchanged conversation about prayer requests we wanted to have. I wanted to say, let's begin to pray now, which should have been, ja, oinorishimashou, which is, let's say an honorable prayer together. Ja, oinorishimashou. But instead it came, ja, ionarishimashou, which is, let's do a good fart together. That things can get lost in translations, and small little twists of vowels can make a significant difference. <laughs> it gave me a huge appreciation for language, just my experience there. In Japanese, tsumi is the word for sin. And every time I would share that and talk about tsumi, these college students I was talking with would say, why are you using this archaic word and it means criminal or crime and I'm not a criminal and you need to go down the street to the prison and talk to them because this doesn't really relate to me. So I started realizing when they had translated the Bible into Japanese, they did the best they could with what they had, but probably Tsumi did not, the word Tsumi did not really express what was going on there. Because the Japanese are such a polite people and politeness is such a high value in the society, I started to expound on this word sumi. I said, you know how when you go into someone's house in Japan, you know how you take off your shoes? And they're like, yes. And I said, well, that's polite to take off your shoes. But what if you go to someone's house and you walk in with your shoes on and they say, excuse me, could you please go back and take off your shoes? And you do it. But then the next time they keep doing it and then eventually they say, I don't care about your shoe rule. I don't want to take off my shoes. So I'm just going to wear my shoes your house. How would that feel to you? And they said, ah, today. that's very rude. That's very rude. That would not be done. And I said, sin is like walking in God's house with your shoes on when he asked you to take them off. It's being rude. So today or rudeness to God is what we're talking about. And they were like, oh, now it makes sense. I wouldn't want to be rude to God. I found out just a couple years ago that they changed a lot of their uh, evangelical tools and written tools that they were using to explain sin in this concept because of the conversations I had had with people. So I was like, that's kind of neat, you know, to kind of think that. But at the end of the day, they could be stuck in their translation their whole life. And then an outsider comes in and says, what about this way? Can we help people to understand by explaining it more adapting to their way of seeing things? Translation involves that type of thing. It involves understanding the culture, understanding the language. And when we're looking at these passages in question, what we call the clobber passages, these clobber passages from at least 2,000 years ago, in most of the cases, a different language, a different culture. So it's Greek, but it's old Greek. You cannot say old Greek is the same as modern Greek, just as we can't say English from 13 hundred years ago is the same as English today, because I can't find anyone that would recognize 1,300-year-old English as English unless they're a scholar who specifically studies Old English. And so we have to realize languages change over time, comprehension of those concepts change over time, the culture of that day we have to understand. So we really have to step inside the shoes of a first-century person in Rome when we're reading something that Paul wrote, because otherwise we are guilty of being anachronistic and applying today's mindset of things into an old culture and old language. And it's not going to mesh very well. And we could end up with an inaccurate understanding of what's actually being said. So those types of things became a part of my DNA after serving as a missionary in Japan. Before I could go to Japan, I had to confess any sins before Campus Crusade. And one of them was same-sex uh, thoughts and so forth had to be confessed to them. And so I did. When I came back from Japan and I told my leadership, I said, the thoughts haven't gone away. What do I do? And I haven't acted out over there, but their thoughts haven't gone away. And they said, you need to go into counseling. So they put me into reparative therapy, which was in Pasadena, California, right across the freeway from Lake Avenue Church. And so I can remember sitting in this office and going through counseling sessions with this counselor. I didn't feel like he knew what he was doing. 
So I started questioning him and saying, you know, I'm curious, how many people have you changed from gay to straight? And he's like, well, actually none, but you know, I'm working with some people. And I said, okay, um, how many of these people are you, have you worked with? And he said, well, you know, just a few, but I never got specific numbers from him. The things that he would have me do and the books he would have me read had nothing to do with LGBT issues. He didn't really seem to have a concept of it. And he just wanted me to sit there and share and tell my feelings. But at $150 an hour, I couldn't afford very much. I did notice one change during my six months of reparative therapy. Every time I came, he had a brand new piece of really nice furniture in his office, but I didn't see any change in me. I didn't give up on reparative therapy, even with that bad experience. All I thought was, I just need to find the right person. I need to find someone who has more experience, who has a good track record, who's changed a few people, interview them do my research to find someone, I decided to leave Campus Crusade staff and go to seminary. And that's when I went to Talbot School of Theology. And I thought, I'm just going to spend some time here getting into God's word, not planning on becoming a pastor, possibly going back as a missionary, but I just needed some time surrounding myself with seminary students and being in, in that posture of listening and learning instead of being in the position of teaching as I had always been up to that point. During seminary, I never asked about the clobber passages because should you raise your hand and ask a question, what are people going to think? So I just kept silent and I didn't go there to learn about the clobber passages. I just went there to sit before Jesus to study the Bible and go from there. I think I might have come out to maybe two people during seminary. As always, anytime I would come out to someone, they, woe is you, I feel bad for you, I'll pray for you. And then the relationship would end within one to two months and I would never see them again. So that was just kind of my going experience. And so I was terrified to come out to anyone and I had to realize anybody I came out to, there's a very high chance I'm gonna lose that friendship. I had to count the cost, am I willing to lose this friendship? And then it was like, well, if they're not important to me, why would I be coming out to them? If they're really important to me and I'm coming out to them and I have a chance of losing them, then I'm not coming out. So I just kept silent for the most part because I couldn't afford to lose any more friends. It was just too painful to share this part of my life and then to be in a position of losing yet another friend. And then after seminary, I started to look for a job in a secular position because I didn't want to work in ministry. I wanted to break from all of that. And I just wanted to find a job to make enough money to afford a counselor who has experience changing people. And then I'll get fixed. And then I can get married and have 2.2 kids in the white picket fence and move on with life. So that was my thinking because I didn't know any better. I didn't have any other way of knowing differently. And I had heard rumors here and there that there was a different way of looking at certain passages. And I just thought those people are heretics. They're bad. I don't want to listen to them. I don't to give them the time of day. It was not worth venturing down that path. I was dead set on finding a better counselor. So I kept working and working and working and never made enough money to barely get beyond paying the bills. And so I said, this isn't going anywhere if I can't get enough money to pay for counseling. But I look back now and it was a blessing that I never made enough money back then because had I made enough money, I would have gone to counseling. And I know so many people that were very damaged by that. I heard of one time there was this Bible study that was pursuing pray away the gay. 15 guys in the Bible study, ultimately 12 committed suicide. And I said, this is horrible. I was already very depressed as it was. It wouldn't have taken much to send me completely over the edge. I ended up working in a financial position. I got really depressed. And I came out to this business partner of mine. I was just so depressed because I saw gay couples around me flourishing. I had gay friends at this point, but I had my gay friends separated from my Christian friends and the circles never intersected. That was an, a no-no. My gay friends would be mad at me for having Christian friends and being a Christian and going to church. And my Christian friends, if I came out to them, 
would be like, you need to stay away from gay people and how dare you. And they didn't accept me, neither side accepted me fully. So I was like, I wasn't part of either group. When I came out to my business partner, how depressed I was and going through this. And he said, well, why don't you go find some gay Christians and hang out with them? And I laughed at him and I said, do you realize that's an oxymoron? It doesn't, you can't be gay and Christian. And he's like, well, why not? And I said, because the Bible is against it and you, you have to be straight and you have to pursue straightness and all this type of thing. And it didn't make sense to him. That night I went home and I Googled gay Christian and I came across all kinds of information. And one of the pieces was this gay Christian network, which is now QCF, Q Christian Fellowship. And I started looking at the podcast that they had in there. I listened for hours and hours into late hours of the night. I could not put it down. And I was in tears just listening. They had old podcasts from previous conferences that they had. And the ones that I listened to, one by Dr. Tony Campolo and his wife. Dr. Tony Campolo was a professor at a seminary, an American Baptist seminary in the East Coast. He was presenting his position, which at the time was side B. So he believed as long as gay Christians are celibate and they stay celibate, it's okay. We can let them in the church and they can be a part of everything. We can embrace them as humans and as people who love Jesus, but they need to stay single was basically the way that he put it. His wife, on the other hand, at the time was side A. So she was affirming and she believed LGBT people could be Christian, could be saved and could get married and could have thriving relationships. Because my pastor from an American Baptist church where I had been on staff highly admired Tony Campolo, I was willing to listen to him. And at the time he was side B, he's actually since then transitioned to side A. Tony Campolo would say he would come down the stairs to go to breakfast and he would look at the table and there his wife had made him this beautiful breakfast and a scrambled egg over here and a piece of toast or something and then right next to the plate she had cut out an article for him to read he might come home from the office and he had a book and he said honey could you please read this book and then we can talk about it and i wish we could see this type of love return to the church today so that we could sit there and listen and learn from each other. They continued this discussion over the years. And ultimately, Tony became affirming. That was a big changing moment for me. I said, I have to go to this conference. And I looked at the next conference and it was a month away. So I talked to my business partner and I said, I took your advice. Why can't you hang out with great Christians? And guess what? I found some and they're going to be in Orlando, Florida next month. And he said, you've got to go to this. This would be so good for you. You've got to go to this. And here's a person that's not even religious. So we got out the calendar and he said, I'm going to cover all your appointments for them. You're going to go. I went to this conference in Orlando, Florida, my very first gay Christian conference. I got to meet people and talk with them and hear their stories and they would hear mine and they would be patient to hear where I was because I would have been a side B at the time. I might have been even been between a side B and a side X at the time. Side X is where someone thinks that you can become ex-gay you can change your sexual orientation from gay to straight through therapy, prayer, a magic pill, or whatever the case may be. But not a single person, to my knowledge, has ever changed from gay to straight. I've seen behavior change, but I've never seen a sexual orientation change. And I have interviewed literally hundreds, if not thousands of people. I've looked for these people far and wide. I can't find a single person whose sexual orientation has changed from gay to straight or from straight to gay. I've found other things out there, but nothing that would signify a change of sexual orientation. And then, of course, I be being celibate. So I was somewhere between those two, teetering between those two positions. Because they had the conference in Orlando, Orlando also happens to be, or at the time was the headquarter for the largest ex-gay ministry in America, Exodus International, which was the head of that was Alan Chambers. Justin Lee, who is the head of Gay Christian Network, had invited Alan Chambers along with some other people to be on a panel discussion in front of the whole group. And it wasn't originally in the plan. And so Justin continually apologized 
to the audience that was there. He said, tomorrow we're going to have this panel discussion. And I know some of you uh, have been very hurt by Exodus International and the reparative therapy attempt. And you've had friends that you've lost from it. You've been damaged from it. And I apologize, but we want to bring him here with some other people and we want to ask some questions. And if you don't feel comfortable, I'm going to ask you to sit out on this one. Please know that we we feel led to go down this direction. I was excited. Here's a guy in charge of the ex-gay ministry. I didn't even know about this ex-gay ministry. Maybe he's got the answer to what I need. If he's got some counselors that are going to straighten me out, I'm ready. Let's get to this, right? It was interesting because Justin Lee went through one person at a time to give a kind of an introduction. And I can remember the first person was Jeremy Marks, who used to be in charge of the largest ex-gay ministry in the UK. He had realized that this was doing more damage than good. They, he explained his story later on, how they switched from being an ex-gay ministry to being a ministry that supports gay people and gay couples. They became affirming and they changed their entire ministry mission statement and outlook. The next person was Wendy Gritter, who used to be in charge of the largest ex-gay ministry in Canada. They changed their position to an affirming position because of experience and seeing it was not working. And there were reasons it wasn't working. And these are people that had their sleeves rolled up and they were in the thick of it. So they knew exactly more information and more details than the evangelical church leading from, you know, an ivory tower who is just pushing out commands without understanding what's going on at the grassroots level. The next person had been in charge of Love in Action in the movie Boy Erased. That person was in it. And so he had talked about how he was changing his position. He had been side X and he was kind of working through that. He is now affirming. The fourth person here was Alan Chambers, who was in charge of the largest ex-gay ministry in the entire country, United States here, Exodus International, located right there locally. When it got to him, you could see how tense he was. I mean, he had his arms crossed, his body language. He was just like, and the first thing he said was, I think I need a martini and a cigarette right now. And I don't even think he smokes or drinks. But it was just so funny because it just kind of cut the tension there and reminded us that even though he's in charge of this group that's done a lot of damage, he's a person too. He's a human being and he loves Jesus and he wants to please Jesus as well. The first question that I can remember that Justin asked him, he said, Alan, I went on your website last night just to make sure before this interview that it is what I thought it was, which is offering to change your sexual orientation. And it says a change is possible. You can change. God wants you to change. We can help you change. We're here to help that change. We're here to help the change that God wants. Your website is loaded with this keyword change. And it's obvious from your website that you're talking about change in sexual orientation. So I have to ask you, Alan, how many people have changed from gay to straight in the 38 years that you guys have been in business? Alan paused and he answered. He said, well, and you have to remember, before he's giving this answer, I'm thinking in my mind, because remember, I'm wanting to interview this Alan Chambers guy and find out his best counselor, and I'll borrow money from wherever to get healed. I just want to know. So in my mind, I'm thinking probably 60% change is what he's going to say, and 40% don't. And then I thought, no, people don't pray as hard as I do. So probably 40% change and 60% don't. And I, I'm going to be a part of that 40% because I'm going to pray, pray, pray and I'm going to do whatever it takes to change and to become straight. He said, 99.9% .9 of our people still have same-sex feelings after going through our entire program. As a business owner, the first thought in my mind was, you should be bankrupt with results like that. Basically, you're telling me no one's changed. And if no one's changing and you're in the business of change, then probably you shouldn't be in business. And then my next thought was, there were actually 800,000 people who've gone through reparative therapy. So I would be in that category 
category of 800,000 people. Out of the 800,000, millions of evangelical dollars had been sent from these evangelical churches and these people giving their life savings to change, and not a single change took place. So I, as a business owner, I thought, what a waste of resources. Alan Chambers was sitting on this panel in this conference from a side X perspective still. He was saying they had 99.9% failure, yet still advocating for it? Yeah. Did he explain why he was still doing it? He did not explain why they're still doing it in, in that particular conversation, but a, a few short months later, they folded, they closed down. There was no more Exodus International. They said, we cannot do this anymore. It's causing damage, but it's not causing any good. We need to fold, which caused a lot of evangelical leaders to be upset because where are they going to send their gay people to now? The thing was, it's like, did you not talk to your gay people afterwards. It didn't work. It didn't fix them. But I guess there was no follow-up with the evangelical leaders to see that this wasn't really working. What did Justin say in response to that number? Well, Justin probably already knew that number, so he wasn't surprised. I, there was a gasp in the audience, I remember. Did and you gasp? I definitely gasped. Remember, my first thought was, you need to be bankrupt. You shouldn't be in business. And number two is, what a waste of funds. All of this took place within seconds in my brain. My next thought was thousands, hundreds of thousands of people went through reparative therapy, trusting God, praying, following whatever things were given to them to do, exercises or books to read, ways to process or counselors to kind of follow through. These people went with a genuine concern and a desire and a heart for God. And basically not a single one changed. My next thought was God could have changed these people. God is all powerful. He is almighty. He tells us to ask what we want. He gives it to us. And in all these other areas, God answers prayer for healing, for help with finances if someone needs to, all these different things. And yet God never, ever answered their prayer because God made us this way purposely. And it hit me like this big epiphany. It was like, God made me this way purposefully because he made me beautifully and wonderfully the way I am. And I can no more change my sexual orientation than I can change my eye color, my ethnicity, or any other types of God-given traits to me. And so it made me realize, oh my goodness, God made me this way. And if he made me this way on purpose, and he does not intend to change because he could change, but he chose not to. God did not choose to change any one of those people. Then I want to dig into these clobber passages and learn more because maybe I'm not digging into them deep enough. Maybe I'm not taking context, history, and culture into account like I should to study these passages. So I'm going to dig into these in a much deeper way. And that's what led me to go down the path I've been in. Was this thought process happening while you were sitting at that conference? When you're the part where you're like, oh, God's not changing me. Was that a realization you were having at the conference? While yes, Alex absolutely. Right there. Right there. Right there. Not, not changing me, but he didn't change. Here is a sample set of 800,000 people. If we experimented on 800,000 people for 35 years, and we don't have a single change, that's a pretty good sample size. So I have the testimony of those 800,000 people, and I have my own personal testimony, which I'm not going to trust my own feelings and my own testimony. But when I see evidence and information like that, I've got to take that into consideration. Because I'm in the advocacy work that I am now, now I know the behind the scenes people. I'm Facebook friends with everybody that was up on stage that day, including Alan Chambers. I've met these people. I know these people. I know the behind the scenes stories. And I also know when Alan Chambers 
was thinking in his mind, have, have we had a change? And he said the 99.9, the 0.005 person that he was thinking about is actually a friend of mine too. And she identified at the time as bisexual. So she had dated a woman, broke up with the woman, dated a guy and married a guy, has a family and two kids. So bisexual, if someone is bisexual, they have the capacity of dating or marrying a guy or a girl. That was his thinking was he had this person in mind when he did that. And in truth, she didn't change either. So let me get this straight. You're sitting there hearing Alan. You're like, okay, you're anticipating the numbers. You're like, I'm going to be one of the smaller number that's going to succeed in what he's offering. And then you heard the number and you were like, oh, all the thoughts you had. And then shortly after that, it was, I'm supposed to be this way. All within a couple of minutes, it hit me like an epiphany. I was like, wow. Now that's not when I changed my position, but that's what caused me to say, I need to study this more. It's not like somebody just reads a book and they become affirming, but I see that there's two shifts. So somebody's coming along in their non-affirming life and they come across something that might shock them. Like for example, my kid came out as gay, but my kid loves Jesus. Oh my goodness. Maybe I haven't understood this. Maybe I'd need to dig into it more. So it shifts them from being non-affirming to being questioning, being non-affirming to I'm going to study this in a way that I haven't thought that I needed to study before. So then they go through this next section of their life studying, and it might take weeks, months, years to go through this. For me, it was years of studying this and looking into this, and then eventually becoming affirming. I can't even pinpoint a day that I became affirming. I think, it, and as I had mentioned to you before, it's like a scale. I had this affirming evidence and this non-affirming evidence. And every time I would find a pebble of irrefutable fact, I would place it on one of those scales. This is something we know to be true, and it leads us to think toward affirming. This is something we know to be true, and it leads us toward non-affirming. And I realized over years that my affirming scale had, oh, so much more information than my non-affirming scale. And I I was like, I can't in a good conscience continue to be non-affirming because this is not true to the information and to the facts. The information, the evidence is overwhelmingly leaning toward affirming for people who actually dig in and study and see what's actually there. So I was reading through the book of Acts when the sheet is let down and Peter sees the sheet and sees all the unclean animals and yeah. things on the sheet. Just during that time, I'm communicating with God and communing with God. And it was as if the Holy Spirit said, what if I told you it was okay to be gay? I stopped, I backed away and I was just like, I am trying to communicate with God right now. What in the world is entering in my head to try and interrupt this? Because that's wrong. I was like, go away, Satan. Just what I thought, you know, I want to talk to God right now. And then God was saying it again. What would it take for you to change your position on this. What if you had a, a Saul to Damascus experience where the light comes down and changed Saul from anti-Christian to supporting and becoming the Christian leader of his day? And I said, no, if I had a Saul to Damascus type of experience, I would just think that it was Satan disguising himself as an angel of light in order to fool me. So I communicated with God that the only way I'm going to change my position on this topic is if God convinces me through and because of scripture. Scripture is our standard for our faith, right? Anything else, you know, someone telling me I had a word of knowledge or this, that, or the other, I'm not going to trust anything. I want it to come from scripture is what I was telling God. That's the only way it's going to have an impact on me. Several years later, I started digging in to kind of see what God had to say about these so-called clobber passages if I understood them from a cultural and historical 
standpoint. And that's when I started to dig into that more. And that's another five hours worth of conversation right there. But long, long story short, I changed from non-affirming to affirming because of what I found by studying scripture more in depth. Because of my love for various languages and foreign languages and having lived in Japan and having studied the Bible and church history, you know, church history and the Bible, those are two different things, obviously. I started realizing all of these clobber passages that I have read, I have only read in English, aside from Greek and Hebrew, biblical languages, and Japanese, obviously, I've read them in Japanese. For the most part, I've studied these in seminary in English, mostly American English, not even British English books. We didn't have access to as many of those when I went to seminary. So I started wondering, how did the other persons during the Reformation translate these six clobber passages when they got to them? Because we don't look at other languages as much, and we need to have a specialist in that language to look at it. So I started collecting old Bibles from the past 500 years and commentaries and things like that. And as people come to my house, as I have an influx of people from all over the world come from time to time, and I'll pull up one of my old Bibles, I'll say, can you help me with these passages? I want to see, you know, every single word and understand what's going on. And so my German friend was in town. And so I had him go through um, the clobber passages in the German. We went to the two Levitical passages, which basically says man shall not lie with man as he does with the woman, for it is an abomination. In the German, it says man shall not lie with young boys as he does with a woman, for it is an abomination. And I said, are you sure that's what it says? He said, yes. And he's he's got his master's degree. So he's an intellectual type that likes to look at and study. So he knew about this website that talks about the old German words and if they've changed meaning or have the same meaning from 100, 200, 500 years ago. So he looked, went to that website that he is familiar with. And he says, no, this is the same thing. It's a young boy. And I was like, wow, well, let's look at the New Testament passages. And so I was interested in the first Corinthians passage, first Corinthians 6, 9 and first Timothy 1, 10. And so we went there and in the German in first Corinthians 6, 9, instead of arsenokoitai and malakoi, malakoi translates as soft and arsenokoitai would be arseno is singular for man, koitai is plural for bed. So one man, many beds. These are the words that got conjoined and became homosexual in 1946 and have been in and out of the word homosexual or man sleeping with man uh, throughout the, the translations of the last 80 years. The German version, however, says that the guilty party is a Kanabenschenda, and Kanaben is young boy, and Shenda is molester. So boy molesters will not inherit the kingdom of heaven is what the bad person is in 1 Corinthians 6, 9. And then um, 1 Timothy 1, 10, it also repeats it again, Kanaven Shenda, boy, boy molesters. And so I was like, wow, this is interesting. And so I started digging into other German translations, and I have multiple German Bibles from several different parts of history. We had a couple of friends help us out to look through all the different biblical translations. And I asked my German friend while he was here, I said, so what's the modern German version say for this word? Does it still say boy molesters? And he looked it up and he said, it says, homosexual. So it's got the word homosexual in the, in the current modern German version, which was 1983, that particular version started. So then Kathy and I found uh, this great person over in Germany who went back and did some research to look back through every single German translation that they updated the language. And we always update languages. By the way, since 1378, when the Wycliffe Bible came out, we've had 450 different English translations, uh, versions, and paraphrases. We see it's because of language changing or because someone says, that's not right. And so they go in there. So we can't even agree in the last 800 years. And so to think that we've got it all down or any one version is perfect is ridiculous because the Bible is a joint venture between a perfect and holy God. God and sinful and imperfect man. And when we have a joint venture like that, the parts that God produces are perfect, but the parts that we produce 
cannot be perfect because we are not perfect. Hence, 450 different tra English translations, versions, and paraphrases. The German version has been translated or updated and changed since the first Martin Luther version of 1534. We looked at the history of that and these verses, and this term boy molester stayed in all of these versions with the exception of the 1950s. They changed it to like a licentious person to another German word that kind of means, you know, a licentiousness or something like that. Right after that, they changed it back to boy molesters. And that boy molester continued right up until 1983 when they entered the word homosexual into that German version for the very first time in history. It was interesting throughout history, boy molester, boy molester, boy molester, licentiousness, boy molester, boy molester, boy molester. And then recent history, 1983, finally the word homosexual enters the German Bible. Kathy and I were like, how did that happen? And we started looking into it. And Biblica, which is the company that has done the NIV, New International Version, which is the most populous English version on the planet by far, they helped to fund and produce and put out this 1983 German version. When the Americans got involved, it went from boy molester to homosexual in 1983. So this American Christianity that we export to other countries, we have to be careful of this because We've seen problems in, in different continents around the world when our flavor of Christianity has caused damage. And we cannot be ignorant of that. Too many times we live in our Christian Disneyland USA. We only see it a certain way and people surround themselves by people who think the same way. So they never expose themselves to a bigger world and facts and truth that is out there. That's why we see this kind of tarnishment there. And the interesting thing is if you think about it, the Germans who didn't change the word to homosexual until 1983 should have been, if anyone, the first ones to put the word homosexual in the Bible because the Germans were the ones who coined the term homosexual in the 1860s. So they, they put together a word which was half Latin and half Greek to coin this new term homosexual with what they were studying at the time because the Germans gave us some of the biggest names in psychology throughout the last 150, 200 years. So it was the Germans who were studying this more than anyone else. So if anyone should have known to put the word homosexual in the Bible, it would have been the Germans, but not until they were influenced by the Americans did it actually enter their Bible for the very first time. So that concludes part one of the interview series I did with Ed Oxford. It's a two-part series, so be sure to check out part two. If you are part of the queer community and you're a spirit-filled follower of Jesus and you're looking for a place to be yourself, to be around other people who are like you, and maybe you're also trying to figure out how to reconcile your sexuality and your faith, we created a space just for you. It's called the Rainbow Room. There are a couple different aspects of involvement if you care to check it out. I provided a link below this episode for you to check that out. And then if you're an ally or you wanna be an ally because someone close to you is queer probably, then you might wanna check out our allies group. I'll provide a link below for that as well. And then if you wanna just do some self-guided learning on queer theology and getting a better grid on how the Bible doesn't actually condemn LGBTQ plus people, then I've provided a link to NUMA plus. You can check that out as well. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next time. Listen, there's more where this came from. If you want to see how deep this rabbit hole goes, check out MikeMyashiro.com.